patients at risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. Before we start our show, I'd like to share a few words from our sponsor, Physician Coaching Alliance, Dr. Aaron Wiseman, DO. Hi, I'm Dr. Aaron Wiseman, and I'm here today to talk about Physician Coaching Alliance, otherwise known as PCA. This is a space dedicated to providing stellar coaching for our colleagues so you can do your best work in the world. We believe that in order to change the culture of healthcare as we know it today, all physicians and others working in healthcare need access to coaching. So we can help you find a coach, become a coach, or join our community of coaches to strengthen the work that you're doing. One value that I want to mention that we share in PCA is community over competition, because gone are the days that we see each other as enemy. Instead, we believe working together is the key to success of the individual and the whole. So if you're coaching curious or a coach yourself, come on over to PCA. We'd love to see you there. And now back to our show. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined here for part two of our series on physician advocacy, and I'm joined by two experts in the field. Dr. Purvi Parikh is an allergist and immunologist practicing in New York. She's also a fellow board member with Physicians for Patient Protection, and we're also joined by Linda Lambert. She was the executive director for over 20 years of the New York chapter of the American College of Physicians, and she was also a certified lobbyist for quite some time. And she's been the executive director with Physicians for Patient Protection for the last several years to get our organization going. Welcome back, both of you. Thank you so much for joining me again. Happy to. Thank you. Thanks for having us. One of the things we talk a lot about is the success that nurse practitioners in particular have had at galvanizing their base and gaining independent practice. Actually, nearly half the states in the union now allow the independent practice of nurse practitioners without physician supervision. They now have independent practice across the Veterans Administration. And it's really remarkable when you consider that nurse practitioners are estimated to have about 5% of the training of physicians, at least when they graduate from their training. And yet in many states, they're practicing independently when even uh, physicians who may have only a year of residency are not allowed to practice without supervision. So Purvi, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on why it is that nurses have been so successful at working together politically? Right. I really like to give credit where credit is due. And I think that they've done an excellent job of advocating for themselves. And actually, I think we can learn from our nursing colleagues. I have friends in nursing who even tell me the same thing. They said, where are the doctors? What, you know, we're doing all of these things. Where are you guys? And the reason is, once I dug deeper into it, it's actually part of their education. So it is a class in nursing school, in certified registered nurse anesthetist school on how to advocate for yourself, how to defend your profession, and everything that Linda and I spoke about in part one, that is actually taught in school. So whereas, you know, I had to go seek it out, you sought it out on how the whole process of how a bill becomes a law, how to lobby, what that means. I'm still learning a lot. There's still so much I don't know. That is all taught as part of their education and their curriculum. Not only that, I found out at national meetings, especially for advanced nursing, like such as nurse practitioners, CRNAs, part of their meeting is dedicated to lobbying. So it's very strategic. You know, the, like we'll have our annual conference, right, for allergy immunology in various cities. We talk about medical topics. We present research. But we don't have much on actually, we don't take time out of that meeting to go speak with legislators, right? That's a whole separate meeting. This is built into their annual meeting. 
So all dues from their organizations, a portion goes to advocacy. Whatever registration they collect at their annual meeting, that goes to advocacy. And then not only that, as part of their national meeting, where they're also learning CME up to date on new medical topics, many of those meetings are purposely done in Washington, D.C. or in state capitals. So advocacy, lobbying, those meetings can occur. And I think that's genius because now you're already gathering all of these individuals, right, for continuing their education, rightfully so, and people have taken the time to get there. And now they're freed up to be briefed on what issues are affecting them and what to say to legislators. And so I I just think it's genius. They're on top of the game. One, it starts with their education right from school. It's built into their dues. It's built into their national medical meetings. It's not a separate thing most of the time. And then the other thing is they're already in many different levels of politics. Like I already know in many states, there are nurses at state level politics, federal level politics. They're already, you know, working their way up through administration and hospitals. So that way those large hospital systems also affect politics. And then even just in locally, they're much better at galvanizing the troops, as they say, because even I'm licensed in both New Jersey, New York, legislators will always say, well, we've been hearing from the nurses nonstop, but you're the first doctor that's contacted us on this, or you're the fifth doctor. So they are very good at just showing up, flooding the capital, as they say. So I think it's genius. They've actually addressed it in multiple levels. When I was writing the book, I interviewed several physicians who were nurse practitioners prior to becoming physicians. And that's the exact thing that they said. They said when they were in school, they'd have lectures, they'd have specialists come in, lobbyists and talk to them. They'd have classes on the best way to interact with legislators or aides. And then they would actually bust them. Uh, One person told me that it was the day of the final vote for nurse practitioner independence in a certain state. And they actually bust the entire nursing class, not just nurse practitioner students, but registered nurses students, which is a lot of people, right? And they bust them in so that they could have this huge presence and really make a statement. And it was really impactful on the legislators because you just see all these people, especially in a sea of white coats that really resonates. So what I'm hearing from you, Pervy, is that number one, we probably need more advocacy training and education starting in the medical school level and perhaps even pre-med, who knows, though definitely in medical school and in residency. Secondly, we need to probably talk to our specialty societies and our state societies about incorporating advocacy into all of our meetings. So maybe there needs to be a lecture at each and every meeting, even if it's just, you know, an hour or a half an hour. That's like a training for us to do that. Do you think that's something that would be realistic that organizations would be interested in doing? I think a lot of the medical organizations are doing that. I I can't think of one that doesn't have a legislative day. Part of that legislative day is orientation in the morning. I think where it gets sticky, and believe me, we've we've tried to tackle this many, many times, is trying to incorporate anything into this medical school's education system. The deans are pretty set in what their curriculums are going to be and getting that message. We would try to have meetings with the deans. We tried to collectively bring them together to start to stress the importance of going beyond just the science and going into, you know, the real life situations that practice brings on these medical students once they're out. So that's a bit of a challenge for us that it doesn't exist in, in nursing. It's not that way. So we do have some built in barriers that probably have to be addressed as well. 
I think, unfortunately, though, that lack of adaptability is un- is going to end up hurting our profession. I mean, we, it already has, I would say, to some extent, not only advocacy, but even the business of medicine, I would argue, needs to be built into medical education, right? Because anything outside of academics is villainized in a way if you when you're going through training, and that might be too harsh of a word. But you're, you're just not exposed to direct primary care, right, or private practice, or that there's so many other ways to take care of patients. And I would argue maybe even better, right, than out of a larger system, because you can be more adaptable and do more for your patients. So I'm hoping that some of that flexibility will change when the new guard comes in, because unfortunately, I think because nurses are good at being adaptable <laughs> in a very dynamic time, they're able to get a lot of things accomplished that we, we have not. You know, I think we've always rested on our laurels of the sense of like, well, we don't need to do any of these things because we're doctors and we're so busy doing medicine and it should be obvious to everyone. I mean, just look at the fact that we feel like we don't have enough time to to teach any of this because we're so busy learning and teaching the sciences and the the actual practice of medicine. Whereas, you know, look at the doctor of nursing practice programs, 85% of them are non-clinical. And if you look at their curriculum, it's like informatics, lobbying, research. I mean, there's nothing clinical there, but yet physicians, even just to, like Linda said, even just to get like a very brief time to talk about it is not something that many deans are necessarily open to. And I think it's funny because when I think back to my med school training, I remember my fourth year having an awful lot of elective time and having some flexibility. It seems like that could be something that could be incorporated in the business of medicine. I think that's so critical, Pervy. You're totally right. And it definitely wasn't something that I got a lot of exposure to either in medical school or even in residency. But maybe the med students today and the residents are a little bit more savvy. I've been really impressed with the young people that I'm meeting, how um, involved and interested they are. I see them on social media. I see them on sites like Reddit. They're talking about these things. They're understanding these things so much better than I did when I was at that stage of training. I can tell you that besides doing the advocacy internship that we mentioned in in the first segment, I worked very, very closely with all the program directors in New York State. And there are organizations of program directors in every state. I would do an annual advocacy conference with them. That's what created the grand rounds that I did with students and residents and attendings. So we bridged out, but they built into every one of their annual meetings an advocacy update, and it became pretty much more a part of the program than we ever thought that it would be. But that one-on-one opportunity to ask questions about, well, why did this bill pass? Why why are we now mandated to change the work hour schedule to something different? They are as interested in advocacy for their own purposes as you are for PPP. And it's a good thing. They just haven't been as exposed to it as, as the the others have been, as Pervy said. Since you brought up PPP, I wonder if you could take the time now. A lot of our supporters have asked us about lobbying, and there's definitely something that people are very interested in, like how can we actually make an impact on legislators to promote our mission, which is physician-led care and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners. But Linda, you've been a lobbyist, and you've explained that it's really not so simple. Can you talk about that? Every state and federal government have rules and regulations about lobbying. And so when when we speak, we always want to be careful to separate the concept of advocacy, which is representing the healthcare profession and advocating for patients' best interests with lobbying, which, which is actually going before a legislator or writing to regularly or inciting people to write to their legislators and telling them to support or oppose a bill. 
any mention of support or opposition to a bill becomes lobbying. And what happens is if that is done by an organization, that organization needs to be registered in that state and they need to be complying with all the reporting requirements in that state. And so that is not a simple process and it is not standardized in any way. Every single state has a different set of rules so that lobbying across state borders, unless you're a large, huge, well-funded, national organization is an extremely difficult process. I think that there are certain ways that organizations like PPP can help influence those who want to get involved and lobby for themselves as individuals. And that is to provide the resources and the education, doing templates of letters, both in in support and in opposition to particular pieces of bills that can be changed and edited to whatever the issue is, but just giving them a basic template of what to write and how to say it and how to approach it. Organizations like PPP can inform its members of what's happening in states, that there's a bill on on hepatitis C, or there's a bill on nurse practice, or there's a bill on radiology techs expanding. That can be conveyed, but they just have to be careful that they're not saying we as an organization support or oppose, even though they may behind the scenes and quietly, they're not doing it in an organized way. So the idea is just once you've crossed that line into lobbying, in other words, I send a letter by, uh, from PPP and I say, hey, we everyone, please write your senator, this senator and say, vote against it. That's now lobbying. And so if we do that, we have to actually be registered and then we have to follow all sorts of rules and file different paperwork. And it could be in a certain municipality, not only do you have to follow the rules of the state, but you have to follow the rules of that individual area. So what you're saying is it's a lot to stay on top of, especially if we're trying to navigate different bills across all 50 states. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. And that's probably one of the reasons why it's really useful to work with your local county medical society, your state medical society, because they do, they are registered lobbyists. Most of those organizations have registered lobbyists that know all the ins and outs, right? And I can say the scope issues are probably the most difficult for many of the state medical societies, having worked at one, you know, before ACP and even at ACP. There is a general belief in the team, the healthcare team. And so going too far across a line sometimes can create some misgivings on the part of whether it's the organization, the institution, or the individuals. What really matters is that individuals themselves have unlimited ability to lobby. An individual is a constituent, is a person who is expected to connect with their legislators and give them information. And so that is what we want to be sure people are doing is understanding that just because there are lobby laws in the state doesn't mean they can't convey the message that they oppose a bill or they support a bill. They absolutely can and should because that's their right as an individual. Can both of you address your recommendations on working with national organizations? You know, there's a lot of pros and cons to working with organizations like the American College of Physicians or the American Medical Association. And we hear a lot on both sides of the spectrum. So what are your thoughts on working with these large organizations? I think the main thing is to realize which issues are state specific issues and which are federal, because um, this I didn't I also didn't realize before I got more involved that not every type of legislation is a national or federal issue. So the national organizations aren't going to be pooling their resources to that, rightfully so. So scope of practice, for example, which, you know, all of us are very passionate about is very much a state to state issue. 
So there is no real that there's not much federal legislation that affects it. There is from time to time. But that is something that you'd want to work with your state societies on. But there are a lot of federal issues, like, for example, um, in the insurance landscape with surprise medical bills or with the Veterans Association, with any issue that happens in the VA, those can all be in the federal pot. So it's really important to know what to work with national organizations versus state organizations. And and every group is different. I would look to align yourself with, I guess, a national organization that has similar priorities to yourself. And sometimes it is a little bit of trial and error, you know, because some are more politically correct. And, you know, I've I've spoken to Linda about this at extent that, you know, whereas I prefer other organizations who I feel like are more proactive, right, in physicians issues. So it, it is a little bit nuanced, but both, I think, serve their role and both are very important. And I can tell you, I've seen many, many, many times where an individual can help change a national perspective. The resolutions process in every state medical society that then funnels up to the American Medical Association or the resolutions process within a specialty society is the way an individual can really say, I care about this issue. And this is the reason why I care about this issue. And I really think this is something that you should be taking on. And I have seen where it takes sometimes a little bit of time, but with persistence, and the right arguments and the right approach, you can change policy at the federal level, both in Washington and in your specialty or or medical society. I think you can change policy, but you start with changing hearts and minds because like you said, you provide the information. As I think about it, the FMA some years ago, I made a resolution and I want you to talk about writing resolutions in just a second, but I wrote a resolution just about non-physician practitioners. And at that meeting, people were like, is this really an issue? Is this even something? And then the next year I brought it up again and they were like, yeah, I heard something about that one time. And then like a year later, they were like, this is a problem. And then another year later, they were like, we need to do something about this now. And, but, and, and I was like, oh, I was kind of frustrated, but also it was exciting too, to see that you can, like you said, just consistent education and information and raising awareness. And then over time, you can start to sway policy. I think you're so right. I think the important thing, and and you hit the nail on the head, is to understand the pace at which you can influence policy. Because many of us are very, at least I'm very impatient. And I'm like, okay, I I know there's this problem. I want it taken care of ASAP. But it does take exactly what you said. And, And I went through the same thing because after my advocacy internship, as a, I was trying to tell all my friends in residency and, and they weren't quite getting it. They weren't seeing it. And then I, I just kept talking about it over and over again. And just only recently now, so many of them who didn't see it as a problem are now reaching out to me and, and asking how they can get involved. And it's not just on the scope issue on all of these issues, right? I think it takes a few attempts. But that being said, I was surprised at how easy it is to write a resolution, how easy it is for it to advance. Uh, especially when the timing is right, because that that seemed like another process that was very daunting and overwhelming. But anyone can submit a resolution, you know, and then once it's backed up, that is exactly what is used, right, for these societies to then target their key priorities. I want to jump in, though, just before we go to resolutions, because I know that's what you want to get to, Rebecca. But I want to tell you two quick stories. Not only does it take patience on the part of members who really, really, really are interested in issue, sometimes it takes patience with the legislature. The Clean Indoor Air Act in New York took 14 years to get passed. We had the largest coalition on that bill of any other bill that has ever passed in the New York State legislature. We had cancer, we had 
had Hart, we had AAOP, we had every constituency out there and everybody wanted the bill, but it just took a long time to get the right language. Why? Because of the opposition, which you always have to know. There was big business who didn't want to have their bowling alleys unable to have people smoke and bars and liquor stores and things like that, all that had an impact. And we had to work through understanding all that opposition, getting the right arguments in the right place. That took 14 years. There was one that took even longer. And this was one that was so near and dear to physicians' hearts. And it was the Family Healthcare Decisions Act in New York. That took 17 years of very hard work. And you know what? The physicians never gave up. They had to get the right place, the right time, the right people in the room, the right understanding of the challenges of surrogate decision-making, of -of end-of-life care, palliative care, understanding each and every one of those functions as a part of that bill took time. But we got there. And that took 17 years. So it's not only physicians need to be patient in the process with their national and their state organizations, they have to be patient with the legislature too. But I think you give a very key message is to not give up, right? Because eventually it got through. And I think we all need to learn. I have to remind myself this, that it's a marathon, not a sprint, because it is so easy to get frustrated. It is easy to get burnt out, feel like you're hitting a wall. But Remember that, you know, every little thing you're doing, even if it's one step forward, two steps back, you're moving towards that, whether it takes 10 years or 17 years, you're still getting there, right? So I think that's a really good reminder, Linda. And sometimes a loss can even turn into a win because um, the opioid legislation, which was very slow to get started at state levels and federal levels, from our experience in New York, we fought it, fought it, fought it because, first of all, it was a mandate on CME hours, you know, more. How many more things are you going to parse out that an individual has to take another CME course on? So we fought it, we fought it, we fought it. It passed against our objections in one of those middle of the night changes in the back room. But we took that and made lemonade because we decided, okay, then let's take the bull by the horn and pull for the brass ring and create the education that now is mandated, made some money on it, was able to kind of put together a fabulous, ethical, smart group that knew what curriculum to put out there. And we created an online program. It was one of the first ones. We had 80,000 physicians who took that program. We turned it into lemonade, even though it was a loss. So sometimes, you know, there's a gift in these packages that you might think are negative. That's a good way to think of it. Well, let's talk about writing resolutions. So I guess that whole idea of a resolution is it's just a statement or or a, a goal that you have for your organization, which could be to seek legislation for something specific or just to create a policy. Now talk about what writing a resolution is about and how we do that. A resolution can emanate from any kind of an idea. You could be sitting in your practice, seeing a patient who suddenly has a rejection from his insurance company over a second opinion or over something that you want to prescribe for them. It suddenly hits you. This isn't right. This isn't fair. We need to do something about it. So mid-year formulary changes is like a really great example that these insurance companies are changing formularies in the middle of the year. The patient buys a policy and that's the policy they buy, but yet it changes sometimes halfway through the year. That's a great example. We had somebody write a resolution to say, we need to take up this issue of mid-year formulary changes that the insurance company does not have the right to change the coverage mid-year, mid-contract. So when an idea hits you, 
what you really want to do is just capture the purpose because that becomes the opening part of a resolution. It's the whereas portion is whereas patients are having their formulary changed mid-year by insurers, whereas this creates more expenses on the part of the patient that didn't come um, in their contract when they bought it. You list all the, the whereas's and then the resolved portion of a resolution is what should be done about it. There should be no mid-formulary changes. The resolution itself is kind of structured, but the content is really very purposely based on what the issue is and how to resolve it. Yeah. So actually, this was my first year, even though I've been involved with advocacy for so long that I actually was involved in the resolution process. Again, I was pleasantly surprised at how uh, easy it was because I I think I hadn't participated before because I thought it was something very daunting because resolution sounds so formal and official, but it's actually one very easy to write. There's templates from previous resolutions that makes it very easy. Also, you know, one of our colleagues shared resolutions that they had used at their own state societies on on very similar topics. So it was basically written for me with a few tweaks here and there. And then, you know, the actual process of when the resolution is discussed is also not as daunting as it seems. You make your case. And for the most part, sometimes there might be a lukewarm acceptance. But I think right now we're at a, a tipping point in medicine where a lot of these issues that many of us have been sounding the alarm on for years, people are finally waking up to. So Actually, this year, it was very easy to get all of my resolutions through. So I had one in truth and transparency, especially with credentialing and the use of the word doctor in clinical settings. And then um, another one on the terms residency and fellowship and what they mean and um, misappropriation of those terms. Luckily, it was good timing, you know, and, and it was they were very well received. But yeah, the process is very easy and anyone can write one. Medical students were introducing resolutions. Residents were, you know, I was very, very proud of the future of medicine. They're very engaged. Yeah, I think the idea is you just, something occurs to you, like Linda was saying. Like for me, the first resolution I ever wrote, I heard that physicians were being forced to supervise non-physician practitioners. And even if they didn't think that they were very competent or very good, it was a condition of their employment. And if they refuse to supervise, then they would be fired. So I thought, I don't think that there's any protections for physicians. So I wrote a resolution about that. And so the idea with writing a resolution is it can be you as an individual, as a member of the medical society, or it can be you with your delegation, which could be your county Mm -hmm. medical society, your specialty medical society, and it could be a, a combination of different people. And so, but it can be you as an individual, and then you write a resolution and there's guidelines to how you do that. And then the resolution goes before different committees. So it gets assigned to a committee to review it. And the reference committee is what that's called, looks at that and they might make some tweaks and some adjustments to your language. And then they'll recommend that the resolution either be adopted or not adopted by the organization. So then after that, they'll hear testimony from people for and against the resolution. And then on the day of the House of Delegates meeting, it's really interesting because at that point, you can have public testimony from all of the House on the issue. So your issue may not be accepted, but people have a chance to talk about it and learn about it. And I think for the one I wrote the first year, it wasn't past that first year, but I was able to stand up, talk about the issue. The whole house of delegates heard the issue and then maybe they started thinking about it. And then in the future they said, Oh, you know, this is a problem. So I think that's what's so interesting is it gives an opportunity 
for discussion amongst the group and, and really healthy discussion because it's not as scary, it's scary when you stand up on the microphone, especially for the first time, my heart was pounding like crazy, but it's people want to hear what you have to say. It's very civil. It's very respectful. Everybody gets a voice, at least in, in our, in Florida. And, and it's such a great experience. So I recommend everyone, if you haven't had a chance to attend one of these meetings, you really should. And it can be literally on any issue. So there were uh, resolutions on gun control, resolutions on women's rights. And, you know, it can literally be any prior authorization, right? For insure with insurance companies, which is the bane of everyone's existence, really, you can pick any issue which you think is broken in healthcare and bring it to light with the resolution. I think that's the beauty of it. And there are some that just, as we were saying in the first episode, might take forever. Things like single payer versus the existing system. There are resolutions in every single session of every single organization I've attended. And they'll probably on. never, ever, I mean, they're just so big and so huge. Like same with, you know, every year gun control comes up, every year climate change climate, comes climate up. Change, and there's yeah. a big discussion about, you know, is this even within our scope? And uh, is this something we can even make a difference on? And should we spend our time, you know, and, but at least it's an opportunity to talk about these issues. Exactly. And again, the time will come where it'll be right. I think you're that's so such a good point. I think that the critical thing about these resolutions is that it is an opportunity for dialogue. This is a time that people learn about issues. You know, we're so isolated a lot now in our own little silos and in our individual practices or in our individual hospitals. And we don't always know what's going on with other people, or we don't realize that the issues we're having are the exact same issues that others are having. So it's such a good opportunity to explore what's going on and talk about possible solutions. So when you're writing a resolution, you're sometimes asking for legislation. So Pervy, probably on your truth and transparency, I imagine you guys were seeking or supporting legislation to promote that. Yes, absolutely. And to your point, actually, just the discussion of these issues, and I think involvement in advocacy in general, actually protect physicians against burnout, because we we hear this term over and over again. And I think burnout comes from that feeling of helplessness, of just being a cog in the wheel of the system, right? And mm-hmm. actually being involved in advocacy and writing these resolutions makes you feel like you have some of that power back, right? Like you're in control or you have a voice to impact these things that seem hopeless, right? So I think in a way, getting involved in these things may actually help a lot of physicians that are struggling with burnout or who may feel devalued in our current healthcare system. You're so right. And it also keeps us from feeling isolated because I think this is the biggest danger to physicians and a huge contributor to burnout is that we don't get together as much. And we start to feel like we're the only person in the world or what are the only person that can't handle these problems and is suffering. And when you talk to other people, when you're involved in advocacy, you start sharing your stories and, oh, I have the same issue. I have the same problem. And there's something just so helpful. And uh, you just feel such a sense of relief when you talk to someone else to know that you're not alone. And we need these interactions with our colleagues. Yeah, I like to reference it all going back to the really, really old days where there was a doctor's lounge where you would go in and behind those closed doors, talk about a bad case, a good case, a problem, an issue, a staff nurse, whatever. We're missing that. And the resolutions process, because those kinds of multiple person debates come up, does give you kind of a safe haven to have that kind of a discussion. A problem shared is a problem halved, as they say, right? (laughs) Just talking about it sometimes makes the, the load feel lighter. You're so right. 
There's another good template that's out there that I know PPP has. Some of the states have begun to take up the associate physician bills, which are the uh, the unmatched graduates of medical school and, and allowing them to practice under supervision. They have more hours in training than many of the allied health professionals who are seeking independence. And so taking those kinds of things as a resolution to your state medical society saying we need to create legislation in this state because licensing is state by state state. The ability to practice medicine in that state is state by state. This is something that needs to happen within the state medical societies and the state specialty societies. But we have some great templates at PPP if, if that's any help to anyone. That's a great plug for our organization. We do a lot more than complain. Sometimes people say you guys just complain about the issues. Not true at all. Yes, we do a little bit of that. But we actually take a lot of action, a lot of education, and we do have a ton of resources. In our last few minutes, do either of you have any pearls of wisdom or any other information you'd like to share with our listeners about advocacy? I would just recap what we already said. One, anyone can make a difference at any level of their training, no matter where you are, you know, what we need is your voice, you know, just showing up makes a difference. And then the second thing, to Linda's point earlier, you know, don't give up, no matter how long it takes, these issues do get through with a persistent group of individuals. And it's so funny you use the term pearls of wisdom because in almost every PowerPoint I ever did a grand rounds with, I had two pages of the pearls. Um, <laughs> and I also had a countdown that would talk about what influences legislators the most, starting with knowledge, understanding data as being the least of the most effective. I remember and, that. <laughs> and the top one, it, will it get me reelected being you know the first one? So I have had pearls and all of them is be confident in you are the resource. You are the person who understands healthcare most. Be active. Nobody else is going to do this for you. In fact, there are going to be people who are doing it against you and taking away the privileges that you've worked so hard to achieve. Be sure that you communicate clearly, succinctly, know your issue, know the people that you're dealing with. Those are the pearls that I would end with. That is such great information. Thank you so very much. And to learn more about this topic, of course, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel. It's called Patients at Risk. And for many more resources like the ones you've heard about here, please join our organization. If you're a physician, it's called Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. As we wrap up today, if you are coaching curious or a coach yourself, I encourage you to go check out Physician Coaching Alliance at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash Physician Coaching Alliance. Thank you both so much for joining me and we'll see all of you on the next podcast. Mm-hmm.